Amen. Well, our sermon text this evening is 1 John 6, verses 9 through 11. And as you're flipping to 1, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and as you're flipping uh, to 1 Corinthians 6, I want to uh, remind you that there is a sermon notes page available for you in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. And I must warn you that I've made one minor adjustment on what is written out for you. Uh, For the second point, instead of saying the deception of the the unrighteous, it will be the identity of the unrighteous. That will make more sense later on. But for now, let us turn to the reading of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And pay careful attention, for this is the word of God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's now pray and ask for God's help. Lord, Open our hearts and minds by the power of your spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Amen. Well, did you know that Jesus has two books? Now, we as Christians, we often speak of this first book, which the Bible calls the Lamb's Book of Life. And in this book are the names of everyone who has been saved by the Lamb of God. And every Christian's hope is that their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not with ink that is erasable, but with the permanent blood of Jesus that can never be blotted out. For this is indeed why Jesus told his disciples after their successful ministry endeavor, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's as if Jesus were saying, Do not place your ultimate joy on things that will pass away. For there will come a day when there will be no more spirits to cast out and no more sicknesses to heal. But what you can rejoice in forever is that your name is known by God. That your name is written in the book of life. And so we, as Christians, rightfully speak often about this great book of Jesus because it gives us great hope. But in our passage today, 
we see that Jesus has another book. And this book is not as well known. You might refer to it as the Lamb's book of death. And in it are the names of everyone who will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will be cast out from God's presence, exiled from his covenant love forever. And the question before us today is, which book is your name written in? Or to use the language of our text, when all of this comes to an end, what will your inheritance be? Will you inherit the kingdom of God? Or will you be disinherited, exiled, banished? Well, thanks be to God that we do not have to guess to which book our names belong. For in our passage today, the Apostle Paul opens up a page of the Lamb's book of death. And he tells us precisely which book we belong, which inheritance we have. And so with great fear and trembling, we will proceed to read Paul's words and discover our inheritance in the place of our name. We will do this by considering, first, the fate of the unrighteous, second, the identity of the unrighteous, and third, God's response to your unrighteousness. Let us consider the fate of the unrighteousness uh, of the unrighteous in the first part of verse 9. Paul says, "Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" Now before Paul opens up this terrifying book of death, he prefaces it with a rhetorical question. Do you not know, he asks, which is like saying, you should know this. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In this short preface, Paul shares two ideas that we must know in order to find out which book our names belong. First, we must know who the unrighteous are and if we are counted among their number. Now, we will look at this in a moment under point two. But the second thing we must know is, in which we will focus on right now, is what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the idea of inheriting the kingdom of God goes all the way back to the first three chapters of Genesis. And we see it primarily in the language of Sabbath rest. So as you might recall, Moses frames the creation of the world as God's work week. God worked for six days, and on the sixth day, he judged his work, saying it was very good. So in other words, Moses depicts God as both the builder 
and the inspector. As the builder, he worked six days building heaven and earth. And then on the sixth day, he took on the role of inspector, judging, evaluating, testing his own work. And as inspector, God declared that his work was perfect. Tov ma'od, the Hebrew says, very good. God had passed his own test. And because God perfectly fulfilled the requirements of his own work, on the seventh day, he entered into his Sabbath rest. And as Pastor Danny pointed out when he preached this text, the Bible never says that the, the seventh day ended for God. God is still in his Sabbath rest. Well, God's work week was a pattern, an example for Adam. As an image bearer of God, Adam would be given work. And if he perfectly fulfilled the requirements of that work, he would enter into ultimate, final Sabbath rest. Like God, like God's rest, this is the kind of rest that would never end. To enter into God's rest meant that Adam would have received his glorified body so that he and all of his descendants would never die. Oh, to imagine a world where a mother never has to bury her child and a child is never torn from the arms of its mother. But not only would there be no death, but Adam and all of his descendants would have been perfectly confirmed in righteousness so that they would never sin, nor would they ever desire to sin. Can you imagine this? Everyone who loved, would love God perfectly and love their neighbor fully. There would be no invasions from Russia to Ukraine, for greed would be a thing that you only read about in fiction and which required a great deal of imagination. You would never know what it was to feel guilt or shame, for you would never worry if they only knew that about me. They would not love me. For there would be no that to draw love into question. And most importantly, Adam and all of his descendants would have been forever with their loving God, experiencing pleasures forevermore at his right hand. For God's benevolent presence would be ever with you, and there would be no doubt that God loves you and accepts you. So to say that Adam would have entered into God's rest is the same thing as saying that Adam would have inherited the kingdom of God. For even in this same letter, Paul described inheriting the kingdom of God in a similar way as I've just described entering into God's rest. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
but only resurrected, glorified saints can inherit this kingdom. In other words, it is impossible to inherit the kingdom in its fullness if you can die. For this is an everlasting kingdom, and it requires glorified, immortal kingdom people. It's a righteous kingdom, and therefore it requires a people confirmed in righteousness. It's God's kingdom requiring God's people to be with him forever. So inheriting the kingdom and entering into God's rest are indeed the same thing. So to go back to Adam... If Adam would have perfectly obeyed God, thus fulfilling all of his work, he would have inherited the kingdom of God. But you know how the story goes. This is when that wretched serpent takes center stage. The serpent went to Adam and Eve and casted doubt upon God's word in his character. Did God really say? The serpent sneakily uttered, You will not surely die, for God just knows that if you eat of it, you will become like him. Well, just as God had tested his own work, now this was God testing Adam's work. Adam was a sort of priest king, you might say, of the garden. He was charged to work the garden and to guard it, to keep it. And as God's appointed representative of the garden, Adam should have chopped off the head of that unwelcome intruder who dare questioned the goodness and truthfulness of the living God. But rather than slaying the serpent... He submitted to him. And this would be Adam's great failure, his great disobedience. And when judgment day came, God righteously judged Adam's work as sin. Adam had failed the test. He would not enter into God's rest, but his future work would be done with toil and sweat. He had forfeited the kingdom. He had lost heaven. And here's the great problem. Heaven must be earned. The kingdom must be merited. And yet Adam could no longer earn the kingdom. He had forfeited it. He was unrighteous, and therefore he could not enter into the righteous kingdom of God. God would not reward the wicked. He would not overlook his sin. And this is why Paul tells us the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, brothers and sisters, God is just. He is righteous. He is holy. And he will by no means reward 
the wicked. Just as God drove Adam away from the Garden of Eden, so will he exile the wicked away from his loving presence. They will not enter into his rest. They are disinherited. And all of this is what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. It means entering into new creation with new glorified bodies and new hearts together with God and all of his people. And Paul says, the unrighteous will not get that. And so this brings about a question. Well, who are the unrighteous? And am I numbered? among them. And this is when Paul opens up the Lamb's book of death and lets us see just a page of the unrighteous who will not inherit God's kingdom. So listen carefully for your name. Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul reads to us this list because he knows something of the holiness and righteousness of God. He knows that a holy God will not overlook sin of any sort. From those sins that we esteem to be grand, such as adultery and homosexuality, to those that we consider to be small, like greed, Paul says, no sin, no unrighteous deed will sneak past God's holy eyes. Paul knows the holiness of God. And so he writes this list. But he also writes this list because he knows something of the deceptiveness of sin. He knows that there are people who will read this letter, perhaps even people in this very room, who think, well, I can live however I want. I can do whatever sin that I want, and I'll be just fine. I'll still make it to heaven. To that person, Paul says, do not be deceived. And then he opens this Lamb's book of death. He reads it. Did you hear your name? Now, in in truth, we need not look past the first two people on Paul's list for our consciences to condemn us. Here, sexual immorality is used in the most generic sense of the word. Paul also uses this word in Ephesians 5.5 when he says, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Who among us today can stand and say that we are wholly pure? Well, Paul also singles out the idolaters. And in the passage we just read in Ephesians 5, he links it with covetousness. 
Who among us can stand up and say that they do not covet what God has not given them? Well, the list continues with adulterers, which might I remind you what our Lord said, that anyone who lusts has committed adultery in their heart. He then lists men who practice homosexuality, and he uses two words to describe both the passive and the active partners. They are both condemned. Unless we think we have squeezed past these kingdom forfeiters, he lists off thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, or or slanderers, and swindlers, or extortioners. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. Were you on this list? Well, your answer is found in those scary words in the first part of verse 11. And such were some of you. The law of God has exposed us. Like Adam and Eve, we stand naked before a holy God, guilty of our sins. We already know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now we have found out that we are those unrighteous people that Paul was talking about. And so if we're to fill out this syllogism, logically, this means that we will not inherit the kingdom of God. This would mean that we have been disinherited, that we have been consigned to the second death, forever exiled from God. And now, brace yourself. For in the latter part of verse 11, God responds to our unrighteousness. Let us hear with great fear and trembling God's response to our sin. Paul says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is one of the most surprising texts in all of Scripture. We should have been judged. We should have been disinherited. We should have been condemned and cast in and cast into everlasting exile from God's loving presence. But God did not give us the hell that we deserved. No, Christian, God washed you. All of your sins have been washed away by the precious blood of Christ. The unrighteousness that had stained you and marked you as an outsider of God's kingdom has now been removed. You have been sanctified. You have been chosen by God and set apart as his possession. And you 
have been justified. Although we had just read that your name is in the book of death and your conscience accuses you that you have sinned against all of God's commandments and you deserve to die and deserve to be disinherited. Yet God, without any merit of your own, out of sheer grace, he has declared you righteous. As if you had never sinned and as if you yourself had kept the entire law. And because he calls you righteous, he says that you will inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, how glorious this is. But it is at this time that we might imagine the accuser of the brethren steps up to make a case before the righteous judge. You cannot declare them righteous, he might say, for they have broken your law. Their name rightfully belongs in the book of death. And you, O most righteous judge, you cannot reward their wickedness. The law demands that they must be disinherited. O Christian, what will you say when the accuser throws your sin in your face and says there is no salvation for you? Where will you go, O Christian? Well, Paul tells us where to go. He says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, brothers and sisters, like Adam and Eve, we stood naked before a holy God. We were completely exposed as unrighteous sinners before his perfect law. We had forfeited the kingdom. We had lost heaven. But God did not come to Adam and Eve in judgment only. No, he gave them a promise of salvation. A son of Adam would come to crush the head of the serpent. What the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam would accomplish Jesus would earn heaven by his obedience and he would inherit the kingdom of God. And just as Adam's sin was imputed or credited to us, so is Jesus' obedience and perfect righteousness credited to us by faith. This is what Paul means by in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, by the merits of Jesus Christ. And so, after the accuser of the brethren makes his case, Jesus Christ, our great advocate, takes the stand. 
we can imagine him saying, It is true, O Father, that their sin is great. But remember, my righteousness is greater. Yes, they have sinned, but I have obeyed. Yes, they deserve death, but I deserved life, and yet I died in their place. Yes, they deserved condemnation, but I was condemned in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be satisfied on their behalf. Oh, Father, when you look at them, remember me. What is at this point? And we might imagine the accuser takes the stand again. He might say, Yes, I must admit, Jesus is righteous, but they are not. O righteous judge, you cannot apply Jesus' righteousness to them, for that is nothing but a legal fiction. What other judge would do such a thing? But brothers and sisters, Paul puts Satan's last objection to rest. For Paul says that we are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Christ's work for you, then you have God's Spirit living in you. And the Spirit unites us with Christ. And if you are united with Christ by the Spirit, then it follows that whatever is Christ's is yours. All of Christ's righteousness is yours because you are in Christ. Yes, Your justification has been accomplished outside of you. But now, the Spirit unites you with Christ so that all of those benefits that were out there are now applied in here. And because Christ's inheritance is sure, And the Spirit unites us with Christ. Our inheritance is sure. This is precisely what Paul says when when he says in Ephesians 1, 14, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In other words, the Holy Spirit is a sort of down payment or pledge that we will, in fact, inherit the kingdom of God. Because you have the Spirit, you know that we will enter into God's rest. We will be glorified. We will be immortal. We will be confirmed in righteousness so that we will never sin again. We will be forever with God. And so, brothers and sisters, whenever your sin overwhelms you and you think that you could never inherit the kingdom of God, 
Remind yourself of these promises. Of course you don't deserve the kingdom. But God has washed you. God has sanctified you. God has justified you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christian, you can have no confidence in yourself that you will inherit heaven, but Christ has earned heaven. And by his Spirit, you are united with him. And that is enough. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for responding to our wickedness, not with what we deserved, but with grace. Thank you for sending your Son and sending your Spirit so that we might be washed, sanctified, and justified. Assure us of this salvation by your Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen.